electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Walmart Wallop shares seeing their worst day in over 18 months despite posting an earnings beat. Was this stock already priced to perfection or is this company telling the true tale of the consumer? Plus, Baba Breakdown, the Chinese tech giant posting its lowest close since May after shelving its hotly anticipated cloud spinoff. It was just yesterday that one of our traders said he was positive on the deal. Now what is he doing with shares? And later, a formula for success. Liberty Media made a big bet on Formula One racing six years ago. Has it paid off and what could it say about the value of live sports? I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami and Kristen Bitterly, head of investments at City Global Wealth. We start off, though, with the signs that the markets may have gotten a little ahead of themselves this week. Shares of Walmart diving 8 percent, their worst day since May of last year. The big box retailer posting an earnings beat, but gave cautious guidance for the holiday quarter. But that wasn't the only reason for concern. New data showed home builder sentiment fell to its lowest point in a year. Oil prices have dropped 5 percent as a rise in inventory suggested slowing demand. And weekly jobless claims climbed to a nearly two-year high. So does this all mean that the soft landing investors seem to want to be priced in into the markets, maybe a little harder than hoped? Guy. Yes. I mean, it's interesting. So the answer to that question, I think, is yes. I mean, the data suggests that things are slowing down. The jobless claims is the thing I think you have to focus on. This is now a trend, I believe. And I think we're on our way to somewhere between four and a half and five percent in unemployment. And it's not going to happen in a linear way. I think it's going to happen in a very uh, quick way. I don't think the market will like that. But getting back to Walmart quickly, quarter was fine. The only thing that might have been disappointing operating margins, maybe a touch light. It was, again, what they said, the guidance, and kudos to Tim and Dan, who said this would be the quarter that the chasm between Target and Walmart collapses, and that's exactly what's happening. But it's not an indictment so much on the quarter. I think it's the commentary on top of the commentary that we heard from Target that should be concerning for people. Think slightly more cautiously about the consumer versus 90 days ago. Slightly more cautiously. That didn't seem to me like an 8% decline, and yet it was an 8% decline because of that Valuation. Yeah, but this is a stock that's been bulletproof on the way up in really difficult conditions. And when I hear about a 300 basis point hit on grocery uh, and I hear about disinflation in grocery, I mean, we're going to I said some things that I'm going to get roasted on later <laughs> in the show yesterday. I also said, though, uh, a couple things that with regards to Walmart, this is a case where inflation is great for grocers. It's great for retail. And you have disinflation in food. You have deflation in general merchandise, which most people attach to Target. Um, but again, it gets back to a company now that's trading uh, on 24 estimates, which will come down a bit around 26 times forward. So, look, I love Walmart. I actually think they have room for multiple expansion. I think they've made a lot of investments in technology. Walmart Plus, advertising. They have new cash streams that are meaningful. Uh, but this was, uh, I, I think Guy's right, this, this wasn't really about the consumer. Um, and, and back to the data today, I mean, jobless claims, um, you know, remember, we were expecting bad data. We wanted bad data to be you know, good news. We wanted actually stocks and bonds to trade in the same direction, except for when you get enough of this bad data is what you find is bonds go higher and stocks go lower. 
Yeah, I would actually agree with that. In terms of the data that we saw and continuing claims, that's the data that we're looking for to actually show that the economy is slowing. That's actually indicative of even a soft landing, that it's not a recession, but a slowdown. So we want to see that come through in the data. I think with the retailers, the most obvious thing to me is how they were priced coming into this. Mm -hmm. And so how they were priced, that really drove the reaction. So you had half of the retailers, which got a bounce off the back of earnings, and it was really around inventory maintenance and really kind of controls around inventory. And this was more about the outlook going forward. And so that outlook, which is showing a little bit of a weakness in the consumer and a little bit of a slowdown. Yeah, they did say that traffic was okay still, transaction count was okay. So the consumer did go into the store, although they may have been thinking more about what they were spending and sort of budgets. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that we've been highlighting a little bit. I mean, that's some of the data that we've just been seeing. You know, I think on Monday night we talked about this this poll that the FT ran, and they were just saying that, you know, consumers, or at least ones that responded to this poll, are, are not even, it's not just discretionary stuff. It's also staples, too. And I think you got to go back to September, the last time Walmart was making a new all-time high. Remember, that stock sold off 9% over a couple of weeks. All the consumer staples stocks got hit. And it was because the data started coming in weaker um, as it related to consumer. I know there were some other things kind of tied in there, but I think the Walmart is interesting. You know, people use that expression all the time that stocks are in general don't crash off, off of all-time highs. Go back to 2022. This stock was trading. It was trading as an outlier to the rest of the stock market as this market was correcting in the first half. And remember, it came off of an all-time high, and then it had a huge gap. And it was really in the doghouse for a while. It wasn't until they got a lot of these inventory um, situations corrected. And then it was the beneficiary that Tim's talking about is being a beneficiary as it relates to um, consumables and the like here. So I, I don't know. I, I don't love the fact in retail that there's very few names. Costco is another one that really trade as an outlier. A lot of retail stocks trade particularly poorly. And I'll just kind of lump it into what's going on with these Lilly and what's going on with the mega cap tech stocks. There's a few stocks in each sector that have done really well. And it right. seems like all the positive enthusiasm or a positive sentiment is wrapped up in them. And they have the ability to go the other way, too. Yeah, they suck the oxygen out of the room, yeah. the sector room. Um, so if if Walmart and Target are sort of the idiosyncratic stories and their moves can't be read as, as a read on the consumer per se, then in your view, what is? What have we gotten that is the read on the consumer, if not the biggest retailer in the world? It seems like average ticket price seemingly going the, heading in the wrong way. They're, they seem to be more, I guess, thoughtful in terms of their purchases to Dan's point. Those are things I'm looking at, but the biggest read is going to be in the form of the unemployment rate going higher. I mean, that's going to be where I think people start waking up one day, say, oh, wait a second, unemployment's now north of 4%. It's north of 4.5%. Maybe we should be more cautious in our spending. You know, people will start to wake up when, th- when those needles start to move, and they're moving right before our very eyes, I think. And my earlier point I believe will happen. It won't be a stair step higher in unemployment. I think it'll be a nonlinear thing that will catch a lot of people off guard. Bank of America had a really interesting note out today using their own internal data, taking a look at what they call pay disruptions. So they know when people are getting paid, they get, it goes into their bank account. This is three months or more they're not getting paid. There can be many reasons, but mm-hmm. most often it's because of employment. So they're seeing a rise in pay disruptions before they're seeing it in high-end consumers or high-income consumers. Now they're seeing it in mid 
to uh, lower income consumers. And they're also seeing a big slowdown in job to job, job moves. So the consumer is not so confident about getting that next job if they leave that job. Yeah, you have a number of signals of that. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the continuing claims that we saw this morning. It's also the personal savings rate. So pre-pandemic, that was around 8%. Now it's at 4%. And so you think of what that would mean to kind of get back to those healthy levels. Now, some people say, well, a lot of the consumers have built up equity in their homes. A lot of consumers have locked in historically low mortgages, but that's not liquid. So when we start to actually look at the cash flows and credit card receivables ticking up, all of this is going to flow through into corporate profitability. And that those are the types of indicators that we're actually looking at. How are they spending? Where are they spending? And are they using credit to spend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, corporate profitability, especially when you look at floating rate debt, too, is just going to be under pressure. And, and if you look at the consumer, we talk all the time about uh, household income and, and debt services, a percentage of household income, uh, where credit card debt, revolving debt is. So at the same time, we, we are really one not so great, hardly poor job number uh, away from effectively all time low in unemployment. So I think it's taking a little bit longer. I just think, I mean, Dan's right to bring up that that Walmart. Uh, and really, when Walmart and Target gave those warnings a year and a half ago, um, it was really a shot for the retail sector, less about demand, more about the strange dynamics of being a retailer in a post-COVID environment. I mean, those smartest guys in the world in terms of retailing. But I, I think the message, whether it's been Apple, whether it's been Home Depot, whether it's been Walmart, whether it's even been Target. I mean, Target's story was Target. It was not really about the consumer being better. Um, it, it's it, look. We had consumption trends coming out of COVID that I don't think we're going to see again for a long time. And a lot of it is just a relative uh, markdown in terms of those expectations. Yeah, and just the last point, I'll just say that normally on a day that you see, you know, we're talking about Walmart down eight percent and, and cautious on the consumer. When you see oil, and I know we're going to talk about oil later, down five percent, you'd say, well, that you know maybe that should be something that acts as a, a bit of a tailwind for a consumer that's kind of strapped. And then if you obviously, uh, and listen, there's a lot of cross currents. Yields were in today. You know, you know what I mean. So we know mortgage rates have come in also. Um, But at the end of the day, I I just I feel like we're back to that place that we were six months ago where a handful of stocks are doing a lot of heavy lifting. I know there's been huge bounces over the last couple weeks or so. But to me, for all the reasons, if Guy is right on unemployment and that starts to tick up, I mean, the Fed will start to cut rates sooner than you think. That's the thing that's being pulled forward, but not for good reasons. And they won't be supportive of risk asset valuations. The 10 year yield, 4.44 percent. If I, told, if I told you that yesterday, that we we're going to be at 4.44%, what would you say? Stocks would be higher? Probably. Uh, well, you know, because I know what happened, I might not. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, I think, we're, look, we're fighting around this 4, 4.5, 55, 45. I mean, this is the level we traded straight down to. Breaking down from this level, is this good for stocks or bad for stocks? And I think That's we all would say probably not so good for stocks, except five wasn't good for stocks. So careful what you wish for. I mean, that's what Carter Braxton worked yes. said for a long time. They should be moving in the same direction. Rates are going to go down. Stocks are going to go down, right? It, so obviously it's interesting, again, on the way up, rates were supportive of stocks until we sort of hit that four and a half level. And then stocks didn't like it. We got the five crescendoed. On the way down, stocks love it until we get probably to this four and a half level. Now, maybe not so much. And Carter has said there's a scenario where rates go lower, which is happening, and stocks do as well. And rates are going lower, not because of the inflation, you know, dragon has been tamed or slayed. Because things are slowing down in a pretty marked way. And not to get too macro or layer on too many technicians, but when we had Chris Verone on the other day, he was saying that commodities, the commodity picture has not confirmed what the stock market wants to believe in terms of the move that you cited in oil, for instance, or in copper. I mean, you could take a look at these and say, you know, they're not 
broadcasting to anybody that there's anything great going on here. So I, I and I agree with that. Dr. Copper didn't give it to you. You're getting a rallying gold for all the reasons this commodities are actually selling down. I, I think it's a great environment for picking stocks. And so, you know, we, we were doing that that spread Paris trade thing the other day. That Walmart target spread is is moving. It's moved 30 percent in a few days. It's moved 35 points. You also, you know, you, there's a handful of places, but stocks right now seem less correlated to each other. And it's it's a pretty interesting time because there's a lot of stocks that have been painted with a, a macro brush. Look at Intel, really outperforming the semiconductor. Intel up seven, almost 7% today and up 60% since May. So there are plenty, plenty of places to be making money. There's a lot of stocks that have been punished in this environment. For more on uh, what's ahead for Walmart, its competitors, and the outlook for consumers, let's bring in Bill Simon, the former Walmart U.S. CEO. He's now in the Darden Restaurants and Haynes Brands board. So you really got your pulse on the consumer. Bill, always good to see you. You know Walmart better than most people out there. What did you make of the guidance and their cautious commentary? It seems like they had to give that cautious commentary. I mean, we, we effectively got it from Target in the form of their very, very wide forecast for the current quarter. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think the, the reaction in the market was a, was a huge overreaction. It was probably an overreaction earlier in the week, week when they ran up and certainly today. Um, you know, it was a good quarter for them and a, a cautious outlook, which is probably necessary because when you pull apart their report, uh, you know, a, a lot of their growth was in food inflation. They're still talking mid-single-digit grocery inflation, and that's what their food business was up. And so, you know, you pull that out. They did really well in, uh, in their health and wellness and pharmacy business, and then their broad lines, the hard line and soft line business was, was down, similar to Target, not as bad as Target but similarly to Target. So I think, you know, you're, you're looking at a consumer who's starting to have to really, really be considerate of their purchases, which is indicative of us heading towards a, a downturn. In a recession, um, and you heard this in Walmart's uh, announcement this morning, they buy deals. So Halloween was really good. The promotional period was really good, but it slowed down after that. My expectation is they'll have a pretty good Black Friday se- season you know, it's now elongated, but a pretty good Black Friday season, and it'll slow down a bit. And when the consumer gets stressed, they buy deals, and that's what, what that's what we're seeing now, which is not a bad thing. Um, broadly, it's a good thing because it might indicate that the Fed's action is finally starting to slow things down enough so that uh, inflation will cool. Hey, Bill, it's Tim. So you sat in the chair where you, even though your daily job was to focus on the operations, you, you cared about the multiple of where your company traded. Um, Walmart trades at a premium. Does it deserve that premium? And, and I talked about advertising. I talked about Walmart Plus. Um, they've made a lot of investment in technology. And, and you say in your notes that investors kind of feel like they have to own Walmart if they're going to own something in retail. Um, why is that? Well, I mean, they're a beast, right? And, you know, just the size and the scale um, and the, the amount of investment that they've made in the last 10 years is, is astounding. I mean, they've, gr- they've grown their top line $100 billion in the last, say, eight or nine years and actually have a lower operating income than they did eight or nine years ago. What that really equates to is just a massive change in the company, in the infrastructure, in the, their, their digital capacity and the businesses that they're building. So, you know, it's a long-run play. They're just going to be they're just going to be really, really difficult to beat in the short run. You know, you can bet against them. They're going to have to anniversary this food inflation and the growth that they've had from that. And that'll be a challenge. But in the long run, yeah, they, they probably do deserve to be a, a, an outside multiple.
Bill, you've talked about the self-inflicted wounds at Target for a while. Will this be the quarter when you look at operating margins came in much better, 5.2 percent? Inventories down almost 14 percent. Again, sales growth of only down about 3 percent. Will this be the quarter we say that Target figured it out and that multiple should be obviously not a premium to Walmart, but it should start to catch up? I do think so. I mean, you know, look, Brian Cornell is a great retailer and he knows what he's doing. And, you know, it was really encouraging to see them get their cost structure in line and, and to be able to sort of get that managed. And really now all they're waiting for is sales to return. And, and look, it, it's going to be hard to be as bad as they were over the last 12 months and the next 12 months. So they're going to they have much easier numbers to anniversary without all that inflation in it that Walmart does. So in the short run, you know, I think Target's ready for a run. But we spent a lot of time, obviously, talking about Walmart and and that grocery business. And, you know, today it just kind of struck me. Kroger is trading at a new 52-week low, and it trades, you know, at a multiple much, much lower than that of Walmart's. What's the read-through on that? You know, the margin structure is not that different. You know, it's a a low-growth company. But, again, it trades really cheap to the market and many of its peers. Yeah, I I mean— Look, Walmart is unique in that it's sort of woven together this grocery business, a general merchandise business, and a a health and wellness business. So they're kind of CVS, Kroger, and, you know, Target combined. And, you know, what happens when one struggles, typically another piece of business sort of steps up and, and, and runs it, you know, delivers for them. And if you look today in their release, I think they said their health and wellness business was, you know, up high teens. I mean, that's a just a monster number that Kroger doesn't have. And so Kroger's probably dealing with the food inflation um, and the traffic kind of uh, transaction issues that Walmart is, um, but they don't have that big monster business in the margin that comes from the general merchandise. So I think that's the difference. Bill, always great to get your take. Thank you. Bill you Simon. And while we didn't explicitly ask on air, would you rather, Mm. he did say he would rather target over the next 12 months over Walmart. But um, Karen and I were actually just discussing that that notion of the Kroger multiple Mm. in the car ride home last night. Oh, really? um, Where she was saying 58% of revenues at Walmart are from grocery. Kroger's. Were you guys really talking about that in the car ride home? Oh, dude, have you ever been? Have you ever done it? Isn't that time to talk about where you're going to have a cocktail? No, Tim, they they get into the wonkiest stuff from the show. I've been there. Anyway, we digress. Okay, sorry. Um, Kroger's P is like 10 you know, and so if you impute that onto Walmart with 58% as grocery, shouldn't it be much lower? Well, uh, Kroger multiple. It also has right. negative EPS growth. I mean, so negative guess, EPS yeah. growth. So it makes yes is the answer to the question. And Kroger is obviously a very Kroger specific story. It does come back to Walmart at a certain point. Obviously, this was the quarter that everybody, the gaps were closed. But is that a one off thing? I mean, Walmart traded 30 million shares, say six times normal volume. I don't run too far from Walmart on this sell-off, I don't think. Yeah. Is Walmart, Kristen, defensive in this environment? Well, I think it goes back to what we were saying about how it was priced to perfection coming into this and this delineation between how the retailers have been performing. And it's hard to 
to extrapolate from that that it's about the health of the consumer. It's really idiosyncratic stories. But going back to something Tim said earlier about this disinflation and deflation argument, I thought that was the most interesting part of some of the commentary because what they said was that deflation could actually net be good because it would reduce the cost of like the basic goods and then increase spending in other areas in general merchandise. So you take that through and you say, okay, all of the signs of the slowdown, which then could ultimately lead to rate cuts, which then could actually be more stimulative. I think it's a stretch, but that was something that I think the, the market was trying to get their head around as well. Yeah. Uh, sticking with retail here, we've got an earnings alert on Gap. Shares are jumping following a huge earnings beat after the bell. The call is just getting underway. Courtney Reagan's got the latest court. Hi, Mel. Yeah, so like Walmart, Macy's, Ross stores, Gap also beating on profit, revenues, and comparable sales. Though the fourth quarter guidance is a bit conservative. Gross margin, 41.3%. That's up year over year and well above consensus, too, in the third straight quarter of margin expansion there for Gap Inc. Total comparable sales, they did fall 2%, but the street was expecting them to fall nearly 9%. Old Navy, which is the biggest brand by revenue, grew comps 1%. Athleta down 19% for comps. That is, though, the smallest by revenue. I spoke to new CEO Richard Dixon ahead of the conference call, which, as you mentioned, is going on right now. And he said, month to date, we've seen modest improvement over our third quarter performance, and that's embedded in the forecast. CFO Katrina O'Connell added the retailer is taking a prudent approach to competing during the holiday season. Dixon said the margin expansion was driven by lower promos, leaner inventories, <coughs> excuse me, and the team controlled expenses extraordinarily well, with cash 100% more than at this time last year. It's all part of his focus on operational and financial rigor, enabling us, <coughs> excuse me, to focus on reinvigorating the brands. But of course, how would they reinvigorate the brands and the sales? <coughs> Excuse me. Dixon's at Old Navy and Gap. They're making progress, but it's going to take longer at Banana Republic and Athleta. Melissa? I got the same cough, Courtney. So <laughs> don't worry. I'll get a drink of water. Courtney Reagan, thank you. Guy. Another company with their inventories in line down 22% year over year. You had this huge double bottom around seven and a half bucks. The stock is now up 100% since the spring, and it's at levels we last saw magically this time last year. In my opinion, if you've enjoyed this ride, which some people have, tomorrow's the day not to be adding to Gap, it's to be getting out of it. Coming up inside the latest crypto craze, we'll sit down with Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein for a closer look at how close a Bitcoin ETF could be to reality and how it could transform the crypto industry. Plus, a Baba Buzzkill, the Chinese tech giant, plunging after disappointing earnings and a scrap spin-off plan. We'll dive into the numbers next. More Fast Money in two. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Alibaba tumbling more than 9%. Its worst day since last October. The move coming after Baba announced it was scrapping the spin-off of its cloud computing unit. The company blaming the U.S.'s ban on chip exports to China, saying it is harder to get the needed supplies. Baba also missed earnings expectations for the current quarter. You were just saying that it was undervalued, given the value of these spinoffs. Yeah, look, and, and it... And it it is and was, and some of the parts on Baba is as good as, you know, a, and that in a subway token or something like that, especially when you consider the value that has been destroyed at Valley Baba over the last couple of years. So, so yes, I mean, yesterday, my view was their cloud business, uh, cloud intelligence group was going to be spun off. This was part of an announcement made by management, something more or less you, has to be rubber stamped and, and, and approved by the government and something that made you believe they were focused on value creation, not value destruction. Um, I think there's more to 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 this. Um, I look at the move in the stock, and I think there's uh, obviously you know you're 74. I think it's your 52-week low. The stock's danced around here. It's not like it had that big of a move last week. Um, frustrating headline. They also had announcements where they you know they they delivered 53% year-over-year revenue growth in terms of their international, their domestic. We know what's going on in the Chinese economy. Um, wasn't a great day for China mega cap tech stocks either. So look. Yeah, frustrating. I mean, I, I, I've traded around Alibaba for the last couple of years, but I've certainly been an investor over a long period of time. And this is exactly why people say China's uninvestable. I think that's the frustrating is probably the word for it, because when you try to do fundamental analysis, it becomes really, really challenging. And I think the thing is that it really trades at the end of the day like a proxy for U.S.-China relations. And then when you look at the, the tech ban as well, and it trades with a very high beta to the Chinese market, which when you look at the composition of that, it's really driven by property. It's driven by gross merchandise exports. So it's hard, even when you have that fundamental story, to really see that play out in real time. I mean, 30% of its market cap is cash. Yeah. Right. Uh, which, which is, is part of why you should be kind of intrigued by this. Yeah. But, but I, I do think... The focus is that the reason they're not going to spin this off is because of the U.S. government's restrictions on chips, et cetera, and that this is in the semiconductor manufacturing dynamic, so that this is a company caught right smack in the middle of geopolitics that don't get better. Tim talks about the airlines being great trading stocks. Alibaba as well. This 78-and-a-half-ish level has been support since early spring, traded six times normal volume. Yeah, does it go a little bit lower than here, 74-and-a-half to 52-week low? I don't know, but I think if you're looking to build a long position, this is where you start. We could have played that fast fire music. I mean, it would have been a nice Are time you? to go old school. Yeah, why not? I mean, let's do this uh, as we used to. I mean, right? Maybe we talk about You'll... Pfizer at some point. We'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. Boom. <laughs> There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. <laughs> Crude crushed. Texas tea falling to its lowest level in four months. And that's bad news for energy stocks. We'll go inside the oil patch's big move lower and drill down on the hardest hit names in the space. Plus, the crypto craze is nearing fever pitch. We'll sit down with a top industry expert to talk all things bit and altcoin to help make you some coin next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We'll be back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. November's rally taking a bit of a pause today with the Dow breaking a four-day winning streak. The S&P and the Nasdaq staging a late-day comeback to close just in the green. Cisco and Palo Alto both tumbling today after their earnings reports last night. Cisco giving weak guidance for the current quarter. And Palo Alto sounded the alarm on billing numbers through the end of the year. Meantime, after hours, applied materials moving sharply lower. The chipmaker saying in its earnings report that it faces a U.S. criminal probe for shipments made to China's SMIC. Um, mm. Not sure what you want to trade here, Dan. Well, it's interesting. It seems like we're in a different phase of earnings, right? It's like been multiple earnings seasons within this earnings. Like if you just looked at what we had to hear from tech stocks over the last 24 hours, it's not particularly great, both geographically and different exposures and the like. And I think Tim's point about the Alibaba spin, that's not going to happen. You know, some of our companies are squarely in, 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 in the mix um, right here. And we're going to hear from NVIDIA next week. Let's hear. They've been tinkering a lot of those chips to get in and around um, a lot of these export bans. And it didn't seem that too much of that was addressed in this um, Xi-Biden meeting either. And so um, I think semis in general, um, you know, an AMAT, it does not trade rich. It's like 20 times versus a market that's 18. Many of its peers are trading higher. Um, you know, it's fine on valuation, but this headwind is going to be sticking around. It's not going away anytime soon for a lot of these chip makers. And some of the other ones that do trade really rich, I'd be very careful in this environment where investors are shooting for us, asking questions later. I thought the Palo Alto commentary was really interesting. Um, I, I didn't really understand a sort of what their warning was in terms of the customer patterns facing the macro headwinds. But within the within the company conference call, the transcript, they were talking about how most of, most customers pay up front for the entire contract. Mm-hmm. So if you want to pay less less for the contract, you're going to have a smaller contract. So durations are getting smaller. They don't want to commit that money up front because of the macro headwinds. And it speaks to visibility, right? right? I mean, exactly. that's just another way to say we don't have the visibility. We, 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 we're more willing to pay more for less less time than we are to go duration, which we don't have any visibility. Cisco, though, quickly, quarter was okay. The guide, the second quarter guide, was not good at all. And Cisco's a really important company, and it shouldn't move percentage points like it did today to the downside, having been sold off over the last couple weeks as well. That's concerning that they gave that guide and the full-year guide. They clearly have some sort of visibility, and theirs isn't particularly good. Yeah, just going back to cybersecurity, we love that sector overall. And it's something when you look at all of the long-term secular trends, certainly a buy-in belongs in portfolios. But I think the comment around billings, when you break down stock by stock, it is about net dollar retention and this ability to retain your clients and not only do that, but increase pricing. And so when you start to see breaks in that with a company that, again, priced to perfection in this type of environment, I think that's why we saw it give back some of the year-to-date gains. Yeah. and and. Guy points out how important Cisco has historically been in terms of a tell on the economy, but I, I think it goes back to two things with Cisco. I mean, the good news is they're going for cybersecurity. That $28 billion acquisition of Splunk is right smack in the middle of what they've been trying to do, higher margin business, but their networking business was awful. And, and it's not really what we heard from Juniper uh, and, and other competitors in the space. And again, the visibility in terms of what they see, uh, they said something like they've got companies with uh, 12, uh, a product shipped, have 12 months or so to even implement those products ship, which tells you they, they, they have even slower growth there. Let's turn now to Tesla, the stock, uh, dropping nearly, what was it, 2% by the end of the day today. Elon Musk once again at the center of controversy, oh, actually, uh, down 4% almost. The center of controversy stemming from his activity on X, the social media platform he owns. The headline on Drudge calling him out for a reply he made to an anti-Semitic post where he agrees with the content, calling it the actual truth. 
Musk now facing a backlash from the Anti-Defamation League and once again fighting with the ADL. Elon also did not participate in a scheduled panel today at the Apex CEO Summit. He was supposed to appear with Salesforce's Mark Benioff to talk about AI in the future. Organizers only said that Elon Musk had a schedule change that prevented him from joining in person. Uh, one more thing here, IBM this afternoon saying it has suspended global advertising on X. And just before 4 p.m., ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino posted this on the platform saying, discrimination by everyone should stop across the board. A bit of damage control, perhaps. Um, regardless of what you think of Elon Musk's post, we're not here to dissect that. Uh, but these are controversial comments, obviously. Um, a lot of people do not like them, obviously. It puts the brand at risk obviously, I would think. All those things are true. Let's look at it through the lens that we're tasked with. What does it mean for the stock? And don't think for a minute there's not going to be pressure from shareholders who were in different funds and stuff. We don't we don't want to have Tesla as part of our portfolio for all the reasons you cited. I mean, that's coming to a theater near you. It obviously had an impact today. That's not a one-day story. I think it played. Now, people say you're always a hater. I'm not always a hater. I mean, back out the move from 100 to 300, which we saw over the last year, year and a half, this stock is down from its all-time high almost 50%. So over the last two and a half years, it hasn't traded particularly well in the first place. Uh, look, Elon has found himself in the center of controversy over things he said in many different forums. And, and I, he's been Teflon. I think the issues with the stock, um, and again, I'm not, I'm not judging whether he should be Teflon here or not. Uh, I'm telling you what we've seen in the past. I, I do think that the brand is something to, to be more focused on in terms of EV, in terms of the valuation, in terms of pricing, what we're seeing in EV brands everywhere. Um, that's the story. It's it's pricey. Coming up, bad, bad energy. Crude oil is at a four-month low and dragging energy stocks along with it. We'll break down some of the hardest-hit names and whether uh, anything in the space is worth a buy. Plus, buy the rumor, sell the Bitcoin. Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein joins us to break down today's Bitcoin pullback and what could, it, uh, what could get it to move higher again. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin down today, but not out. Our next guest says the recent crypto rally is encouraging with a 40% move higher since early September. How much more upside is there for the digital coin? Let's bring in Brayscale Investment CEO Michael Sonnenschein. Michael, welcome. Great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, the premise behind the rise in Bitcoin is that an ETF is going to be approved by the SEC, and all of a sudden everybody's going to want to be in it. There's going to be a lot of buying of Bitcoin, et cetera. Why should we believe that new money will be attracted into Bitcoin once an ETF is approved, as opposed to capital being reallocated within the Bitcoin universe? It's a great question. You know, today, without having spot Bitcoin ETFs in the market, there is nearly $30 trillion of advised wealth in the U.S. just alone that needs access to crypto, that needs access to Bitcoin, and by and large, hasn't had access to it. So the onset of Bitcoin ETFs, spot Bitcoin ETFs, will really open the door to financial advisors, advised wealth, really to have the opportunity to participate in Bitcoin in a way that they really haven't had before. So the $30 trillion number is just the assets under management in wealth accounts. It's not actually money that wants to go into Bitcoin. So in your assumption, mm -hmm. what percentage of those assets want an allocation to Bitcoin? Well, we can start to play around with some numbers. Let's talk about what percentage of that universe wants Bitcoin exposure. Over what time period are they going to allocate to it? What is their target allocation going to be? And, you know, you pretty quickly get to some pretty large numbers. 
Michael, um, what do you think, again, uh, when investors are thinking about diversification and they're looking for the sorts of assets that have the potential to outperform over the long run, this is very new for all intents and purposes. What do you think the bull case is right now into 2024 for having an allocation um, in Bitcoin, whether it's in spot, you know what I mean, or whether it's in, in, in a uh, ETF, that, that sort of thing? What, what is the bull case for all those trillions that are looking for a home? I think for most investors, when they look at Bitcoin itself, the use case that resonates with the largest percentage of them is really looking at Bitcoin as a digital gold. It's gold meant for a more digitized age. It's more portable. It's more divisible. It has arguably greater utility. And that alone is a really large market that has not been addressed yet. Michael, how about the broadening of this rally? We talk all the time about, you know, the the broader market is seven stocks. Um, Are we seeing breadth? But, you know, your point is that you're seeing breadth across the digital asset space and that this rally, which is like Bitcoin's up 120 percent in a year, um, probably garden variety uh, of moves that we've seen at different times. But how about the other parts of, of the entire spectrum? It's a great question. We are seeing from investors that they want to move beyond just Bitcoin and Ethereum into other parts of crypto, but a lot of them don't even know where to start. Uh, we recently introduced a new framework. It's called the Grayscale Crypto Sectors, and it borrows from sector investing in traditional assets like equities, but really helps investors break down the use cases, the differentiation amongst different protocols, and ultimately will allow them to develop the vocabulary and the metrics to be able to monitor developments across crypto, not just in its two largest assets by market cap. Today's sell-off notwithstanding, it appears as though each time a rate cut gets pulled forward, Bitcoin goes higher in terms of the price. Is, there, is, there, is that an accurate correlation? You know, it's, it's over a relatively short period of time, right? A lot of investors have been thinking throughout this year that a recession is coming. They've been looking at inflationary pressures. A lot of investors have different views on Bitcoin. Some of them have looked at it as an inflation hedge, but there's a lot of investors that are just positioned net long because they're excited about Bitcoin as a new technology. Um, so it's too hard to say what those little knee-jerk reactions are to things like a you know, new CPI print. So you talked a little bit about the wealth market and the interest there. What are you seeing from the institutional market? Are you seeing continued demand, especially given what we just talked about with rates? I think that the introduction of the spot Bitcoin ETF will allow for institutions to participate as well. What's been interesting about crypto, as opposed to other asset classes that came along before it, it was usually institutions who had access first, and then it eventually trickled its way down to retail. In the case of of crypto, it went to retail first, and institutions by and large haven't been able to participate, and certainly having regulated instruments like ETFs will allow them to participate. I wanted to get your quick take, Michael, because some of the arguments against a Bitcoin ETF is, you know, the SEC is worried about fraud and manipulation. And granted, Bitcoin is not the same as XRP. But we saw that prank where there was an application, quote, fake one, filed um, on behalf of BlackRock. It was not true for an ETF that tracks XRP. And we saw XRP move 10 percent. What do you how do you think about that? Because I understand it's not as deep of a market, mm-hmm. but this shows that it's so easily manipulated. You know, you see those types of misinformations, not just in crypto, but across all types of asset classes, okay? And a simple tweet can, you know, send stocks moving in one direction or another. We see it all the time. I think it's a really strong reminder as you are navigating the investment landscape, who you invest with, right? A lot of folks are thinking about differentiation, competition in the market. We're a company that holds ourselves out to be a crypto expert. We've been doing this for 10 years. We're operationally ready to operate GBTC as an ETF. And so as you're thinking about where you want to go for that exposure, who you do it with is really going to matter. 
Michael, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Michael Sonnenschein, Grayscale. It's interesting. You know, the reason I want to ask the bull case is it's been a moving target, right? And we've been following it on the show since, uh, I think, 2017 or so. And I think the way, you know, if you think about the size of gold market and why people buy gold or allocate towards it, uh, you know, at 700 billion market cap, it seems like it's here to stay. And it does seem like Michael's got his beat on the reason why, you know, a traditional investor might want a small allocation to it. Coming up, losing energy. The OIH oil services ETF dropping today. Can it get its mojo back? We'll ask Guy. <laughs> That's a tease. Plus, other people too. Plus, Formula One heading to Sin City. Why are ticket prices plunging ahead of the big race? We'll take a look at their finances ahead. Stick around, much more fast money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for our move of the day. The OIH oil services ETF dropping almost 4% and closing less than a dollar above its 200-day moving average shares at their lowest level since July. That move coming as WTI crude also drops to a four-month low, down almost 5% today, trading just below 73 bucks a barrel. Energy also the worst-performing S&P 500 sector today. So we teased that we were going to ask Guy. Yeah. So, Guy? With glee. You tease that, by the way. I, not with glee. So as, yeah, it was. So as we get towards the end of the year, we'll start talking about what do they call these things when you put letter ac- acronyms. acronyms or words. Or words. Put and words so mine it. is Mojo. Let's yeah. oh, There it is on the screen. How do you spell that? Mojo. Oh, yeah, there it is. Look at that. Like the M, of course, gotcha. is metals. Now, the yeah. O's are somewhat interchangeable. They are interchangeable. As they, as they tend to be. Oxy being one of them. Warren Buffett can't buy enough. The stock goes nowhere, which <laughs> only my luck. The J is JCI. No good. But OIH, I got to tell you, I felt like a hero a couple months ago. This thing seemingly was on a cruise control to 400, and it stopped. I'll say this. The valuations now of the stocks that comprise, mostly comprise the OAH are levels that they should not be. Regardless of where crude is, I'll stand by it, although I don't look particularly good today. I think this goes back to the macro backdrop, though, and this idea that we're going to have, if we are in a slowing economy, if we are worried potentially about a recession, I mean, right now you have supplies up in the U.S., you have energy demand down in China, and so you're looking at all of these different signs, what has happened to the price of oil, and it's just a supply-demand imbalance, and we we had a spike based on geopolitics, but when you look at the macro picture, I think it's hard to be bullish on the commodity at this point. I think it's, it's, for the most part, a structural dynamic that isn't going to change anytime soon. I think the world actually hasn't invested enough in oil. I think there's going to be uh, supply disruption dynamics for a long time. I understand the way oil trades, which is that uh, the concept of demand and the perception of a slowing economy always knocks it down. The most important thing is that these companies are run differently. And I look at Schlumberger and I look at their earnings power and I look at, at the offshore drilling contracts that are going into place. And I, I get it. It's, it's volatile. But I, I think defensive, as we think about a market, as we get into next year, I think energy is going to look very defensive. Guy, you said you'd stand by Mojo. Yes. But if you could, if we gave you special dispensation not, you, okay, to I'll, change one of the O's. This feels like let's Mojo, make a deal. Oh, change you know? an what, o. what would you would you change? Would you swap no oil exposure? Would you swap it for another oil name? Can I can I lever up on my O's? Can I O squared that bleep? Or, or no? take out the J and just be Moo. <laughs> That's a good way to end. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, fantastic. Yeah, they got maybe. the J&B move. thinking about it. Uh, coming up, it's lights out on the Vegas Strip. Formula One's placing big bets on Sin City as the motorsport kicks off its newest Grand Prix this weekend. And it's also a topic of CNBC's latest F1 documentary, Explorers. We'll have an exclusive clip for you. More Fast Money in 2.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Formula One is taking over Las Vegas this weekend to unveil its newest U.S. race. It is the latest move in a strategy to attract a new audience and expand the future of the legendary brand. CNBC's Sarah Eisen dives into the topic in her newest CNBC documentary. By early 2017, there was another major change to the sport. U.S.-based Liberty Media became the new owners of Formula One in an $8 billion deal. And what was the thinking at that point on Wall Street about the price? A lot of people, including us, thought it was a full price. It wasn't as if we bought it on the cheap. Greg Maffei is president and CEO of Liberty, which also owns stakes in Sirius XM, Live Nation, and the Atlanta Braves, in addition to Formula One. There are a few places where you can own a global sport, own a league with the scale of Formula One and the fan base, but then in many ways it had been under-monetized. There was an opportunity to better market it, to better uh, capitalize on some of the revenue streams, to go out and grow it in America. That was always part of your plan, to grow it in America? America was always in the mi- our minds, yeah. There's never been a more exciting time to be in sport, and we'd like to think in F1 in particular. After the F1 acquisition, Liberty began to transform the business, rethinking its approach to media rights, digital strategy, marketing, really everything. For more access into the world of F1, check out Inside Track, the business of Formula One that premieres tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time in Pacific on CNBC. I mean, this goes to the bigger issue of live sports, the need for live sports in terms of streaming properties and other channels like ESPN. Look, uh, there's no question that Formula One is a global brand. There's no question that, that in fact, this country is so underexposed to it relative to the rest of the world. I, I, I like this move by Liberty Media. I, 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 you know, I'm a Met fan. I don't like their Atlanta Braves team too much, but, I mean, I, I give them a lot of credit. I think they were way ahead of the curve on this, and I think they bought a cheap asset. But what didn't they do some, like, not doc, but like a show on Netflix about all these cats, and that yes. got people excited. Yeah. Drive to Survive <laughs> yes. or something. I got it in yes, my it ear. Was, it was really interesting. And it humanized these people. You get, you know, you see who they right. are. People can wrap their head around it. Like, right. this is pretty cool. Makes me want to go be like Emerson Fitterpaldi or something. Like Google what, that name, Mel. you guys have done for trading. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right. Vroom. Time for the final trades. Up next. <laughs> trade. Let's go around the horn. Kristen. All right. I'm going XBI Biotech. There has to be more to medicine and pharma than just GLP-1s. Tim. Nice having Kristen on the desk tonight. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and her accent. Um, Altria, MO. Again, a sum of the part story where actually, unlike Baba, I actually think you have to say you have, like, a marching band. That's here. what I was going to say. It does sound like the, t- the, the Fleetwood Mac Tusk thing. This Palo Alto, I'd probably wait until about 2.20 to dip your toe in. Guys? I think we should just, let, let's just listen to the marching okay, band just, real just quick. Just a moment. Just a moment. Just a moment. To appreciate the music. Okay, final trade. GDX, Mel, it's back to you. <laughs> Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 more Fast. Do not go anywhere. Madden Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Play us out. <laughs> All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries 
stories warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.